Hey folks, welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Freedom Grooming. At Freedom Grooming, uh, they, they've got the new Flex Series Electric Shaver, which is uniquely designed to flex and contour to the curve of your head or face for a smoother, faster, and safer shave without the risk of nicks, cuts, irritation, or ingrown hairs. The grooming products will work anywhere on the body, but... The strongest demographic is with the bald community. That's why they're talking through a bald man's voice like mine. <laughs> I shave my head every week, and uh, I use the Freedom Grooming uh, Flex Series Electric Shaver on my head, and I actually uh, agree with their marketing materials. It does follow the curvature of my head really well. I've been using other straight um you know, traditional buzzers in the past, but this thing really gets a very, very close shave uh, on my dome piece. I, I'm really actually surprised at how like uniform it was able to, to get because my head is not exactly perfectly round, but it works really, really awesome. You can get the smoothest shave of your life, especially if you're shaving your semi-bald head. The flexible blades contour to the shape of your head for a baby smooth shave every time. It'll shave 50% more hair in a single stroke compared to traditional razors, cutting your shave time down from 10 or 15 minutes to just two or three minutes for a full head and face shave, and you'll never cut yourself shaving again. The Flex Series Safeguard technology means no nicks, no ingrown hairs, and no problem. Plus, the Flex Series waterproof design means you can shave in the shower with or without shaving cream, shave wet or dry. In the past, I've had to use the buzzer out in front of my sink. And then I have to go in the shower to use the, the proper straight edge razor. This Flex Series razor eliminates one of those two options. I only need to use the Flex Series now. I don't have to do the straight razor. It means I'm not walking across my bathroom floor, dropping little bits of hair all over the place. It's one move all in the shower. And I don't even need the shaving cream anymore. I can just do it wet. So to thank you guys for being such loyal listeners, we've been partnered with Freedom to give you an exclusive 20% off when you go to freedomgrooming.com slash tire. That's freedomgrooming.com slash tire to get 20% off the Flex Series Electric Shaver. Try it now, save time, and get that bald head looking great every time. freedomgrooming.com slash tire. Also brought to you today in part by Berryman Products here at uh, Westside Collector Car Storage, my shop. Uh, we have cars that sometimes do a lot of sitting. Now, although that we, although we, uh, as part of our service here at WCCS, we start up and warm these cars up to temperature once a month if they're not being driven, and we also shuffle them around. Uh, we keep them on a battery tender. We move them so they don't get flat spots in their tires. All the things that you would want to do. Um, when we have cars in long-term storage, we also use uh, the Berryman 4-Step Professional Air and Fuel System Maintenance Kit. By pouring this stuff in the gas tank and mixing it with the fuel, when we do the warm-up, it can clean all major intake and fuel system components in fuel-injected gas-powered vehicles, including modern direct injection and turbocharged cars. It improves hard starts, rough idles, poor fuel economy, and overall drivability. And uh, the 
proprietary universal application system. Works with both air intake and manifold vacuum injection systems. It's safe on catalytic converters and oxygen sensors. Now, if you're driving your car a lot, you can blast through a bottle of this stuff real quick, right? With just one tank of gas, really clean out your system, get your car running well. If the car is in storage, like most of the cars that we have here are, it'll help stabilize that fuel so it doesn't build up these deposits and get gunked up in the lines and cause those problems down the road. So when the customer does to come to get the car, when you take that car out of storage, it will run like it's supposed to. This is really good stuff, all made in America since 1918. And Berryman products, uh, not just the four-step professional air and fuel system maintenance kit, but all of their products are available at your favorite automotive retailer or automotive parts store, or by going to BerrymanProducts.com. BerrymanProducts.com. Of course, last but not least, we're brought to you today by Off the Record, the official speeding ticket fighting partner of the Smoking Tire podcast. We believe firmly that you should not plead guilty to tickets. Just because you've been pulled over doesn't mean your, your wallet needs to suffer further, right? If you get a ticket, it's very easy to go, well, well, it's just $150 or whatever. I'll just plead guilty and get on with my life. Don't do it, folks. Go to off the record. Here's why. That ticket, it's not just going to be the cost of the fine. There's going to be court costs. There's going to be administration fees. And your insurance company is going to find out about it. Guess what? Your premiums are going to go up. And they're going to go up not just for months, but for years, potentially. It's a financial ecosystem that you do not want to be a part of. Go to offtherecord.com slash TST or use code TST10 on the Off The Record app. And they will partner you with a qualified attorney in the area where you got that ticket. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's where you were on vacation. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's far away from home, and that's why you really want someone else to handle it for you. Off the record, will partner you, uh, will pair you with a qualified attorney who will fight that ticket, help get those points off your record so you're not being punished over and over for the same thing. It's very easy. Once you make your account, basic information, all you have to do is upload a photo or a scan of the ticket you received. Off the record will handle everything else. And if they don't get those points off the record, you don't pay. It's that simple, folks. It's very affordable. And if you use our code, that's TST10 on the app or offtherecord.com slash TST. You get 10% off all legal services, not just the one time, but all the way into 2024. Years of protection with Off the Record. Don't leave home without it. All right, folks, today is a very special day on the Smoking Tire Podcast because Zach and I have had an opportunity to get one hour of seat time with Professor Gordon Murray. And if you have no idea who that is, maybe you've heard of a little car called the McLaren F1. Maybe you've heard about the McLaren MP44, the winningest Grand Prix car of all time, driven by Ayrton Senna and Alan Prost. Maybe you've even heard about the brand new Gordon Murray Automotive T50 fan car that is being sold to the public. Well, this guy is a legend. Uh, for the past 40 years, he has brought out some of the most innovative, creative, lightweight 
fizzy sports cars uh, that have ever been produced. And it is an absolute honor to talk to Professor Gordon Murray of Gordon Murray Automotive on the Smoke and Tire podcast. Professor Gordon Murray, thank you so much for the time, sir. Really, really appreciate it today. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to... I want to, at risk of starting at the beginning, can can I can I go back about thirty years or so? Can we can we not go all the way to the beginning, but like but pretty far back because the McLaren F1 is the most iconic car uh, in modern uh, sports car history, and it was so different at the time. Um, what did you see about? everything that everybody else was doing at that time and go, well, this is all wrong and I can do better. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head. It was, sort of, it was sort of like an exorcism for me because I had driven quite a few of the supercars around at the time and, and normal sports cars as well. And they all had really bad stuff. That took, that took the pleasure out of the driving experience, whether it was pedal offsets or uh, really bad visibility, uh, stuff like that. So I, I actually managed to get sort of five contemporary uh, supercars together and drove those for a day or two on the road and then mm. on the track. What and were they, it, if you don't, if you remember? Yeah, yeah I, I can tell you. They were the Jag XJ120, uh, the Bugatti EB110, a Porsche 959, and uh, there was another, did I have my... NSX, I had my NSX there, so that was my sort of benchmark, if you like. Yeah. Uh, even though it's not a very powerful car, but it had a really good ride and handling compromise, the best I'd best I'd driven up until then. So that that was our constant benchmark, if you like. And then there was one oh and a Lamborghini. Ferrari. Oh the F okay. So imagine F4. having <laughs> having a day where you've got a nine five nine, an F forty, a two twenty, an E B one ten and NSX and goes, Yeah, these are all wrong. This is <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, it sounds a little bit big-headed, but but if you drive the cars, even today, you know those foibles and those those things are still there, really. Um, sure, age has charmed I, them, though. You know what I mean? They're they're yeah. now that they're classics and and the quirks are what make them charming. Absolutely, and there's and there's things, and it's not all bad. You know, there's things like the Ferrari F40 steering is still the second best steering I've ever driven in my life. You know, and that's including the F1. Mm. Uh, Number one, still the Lotus Elan, uh, the 1960s oh. Elan. That's just sublime. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was good stuff as well, apart from maybe the Jag and the Bugatti. I don't think I could find anything good about those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But, those those Bugattis, but, are, those, are worth, those are worth real money now. I mean, those are, those could, are deep, deep in the seven figures, aren't they? Yeah, they're creeping up now, aren't they, finally? Yeah. 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 It, was a, it was an interesting car, but it, it's... Uh, Turbo lag with a capital T and a capital L. I mean, it's just the most exasperating thing I've ever driven in traffic. I hate turbos anyway, um, but uh, that was just probably the worst. I think that's funny. The we you know we, now that we've we've figured out in in modern times how to make the the you know they they're trying to hide the turbo now. They want it to feel they they program it to feel like a naturally aspirated engine, but that sort of makes us. Uh, us purists sort of pine for that old school zing a little bit, you know. What was bad is now somehow uh, good. Yeah, I mean that's that's once once again you got it spot on because the um, 
Hold on, just give me a time. Nope. The That's popular okay. man. <laughs> Someone wants to order a car. <laughs> just just somebody who wants to give you $3 million? Yeah. The usual. <laughs> yeah, I'll just turn that off. Um, yeah, so the uh, it's almost anything with a car that you have to add a lot of stuff or cheat to, to, to um, correct, if you like, or disguise, actually, more than correct. Um, is is complex and takes away from the driving experience. You know, uh, people will tell you, oh, we've got, you know, active interconnected left and right hand suspension, hydraulic pneumatic suspension. That's only because the car's too big and heavy in the first place. If, mm. if you get the principles right, you don't need any of that rubbish. Um, yeah. Well, Lotus has still kind of figured that out, right? I mean, the Lotus, uh, the yeah. Evora is a, is a pretty simple car, uh, yep. not too much to adjust, not too much to play with, and and yep. yet it offers a, a huge breadth of uh, of opportunity for road and, and track driving, and it always seems to do it pretty well, you know. It's all it's that that probably that took over from my my ride and handling compromise, which is you know the the thing that all all designers. Uh, <laughs> struggle to get right the balance between ride and handling uh up until the evora it was the nsx i thought was the, the best car around yeah. the evora took over from that and now the one that's taken over from that is my everyday car which is an alpine a110 we don't get those i'm so jealous all i hear is the best things everyone says they're great yeah. well for a start they're 1100 kilos um and, and th there it is. It's just got the they've just got the basics right. I think one of the senior engineers on the program was ex Formula One, and a racing guy, who understands the basics. You know, so lightweight, really good torsional rigidity, and uh, good local stiffness where the suspension attachments are also just as important as, as uh, torsional rigidity. Low polar moment of inertia, fairly low center of gravity, and just it's got just standard stuff. It's got no active dampers. It's got uh, pure double wishbone suspension front and rear, and, and that's all you need. And it's a beautiful little car. If it had a manual gearbox and a normally aspirated engine, it would be the world's perfect car. <laughs> <laughs> a purist. I like I like a purist. So when you went back to early 1990s, you drove all these cars that are very highly regarded today as being some of the best ever made, and you went, these are all wrong. And you went and presented some people with money uh, with a design for a car that had a driver's seat in the middle. Um, did they look at you like you were insane immediately, or did they jump on board and go, oh, well, this, no, this is going to be the thing? I, I thought, I, I, th I think there was a bit of shock, actually, to be, to be honest. Um, I found a textbook when we were writing one formula, the book, the book on all my car designs. I found a textbook from 1969 where I sketched that layout while I was in school, in college. Really? And uh, I, it was obviously always stuck in the back of my mind. But you're right. You know, when I first showed it to the other directors, I was a director and a shareholder at, at McLaren. And, uh, yeah, there was raised eyebrows, to say the least. <laughs> but, but I yeah, wrote but... down it's aged well, hasn't it? I mean, it's really, it's, it's really it's done pretty well. Even the styling is done pretty well. I love the styling just as much as the engineering. I started in art um, before I switched. Thank goodness I switched to uh, engineering because I'm a pretty lousy artist. 
I would um, disagree. I think you're when we see the what, what is the magazine that prints your your sketchbook right now? I just read it. It's, oh, the, new, yeah. it's the new Road and Track, isn't it? Isn't it the magazine I write for? <laughs> I think posted <laughs> printed some sketches from your sketchbook, and the drawings are good. They're they're very good. Yeah, but I mean, making a living, drawing, sketching well, and making a living as an artist are two different things. I think. So, uh, Touche. Uh, so anyway, so I wrote down uh, I wrote down all the things I didn't like, and then I wrote down. Uh, the spec of what I would thought would make the absolute ultimate driver's car, and and I've always been driven by lightweight, obviously, but also by footprint. I just don't like big cars. Not too bad where you guys are, but over here, a big car, something like a LaFerrari, you just can't use on our roads. You know, it, it it takes up the whole lane. You can't take a line through a corner on a country road, um, and cars that you can't see out of, you know, are quite. Really. We talk about this kind of stuff here a lot. I mean, when we're driving, you know, we, when we when we're driving sports cars, we regularly bring up the fact that our roads, even in America, have been the same size for thirty or forty years, and yet we continue to put out bigger and bigger and bigger cars, and it's not really helping. <laughs> uh, the, well, no, the McLaren F1 is very is a very small car. When you see one in yeah, person, it's, it's usually pretty shocking how small and, and petite it, it is. It is. Yeah, but the, the, the clever thing is with the styling and the proportions, actually more than the styling, is if you get that right, you can still have road presence with a small car. If you get, you can have a big car with the wrong proportions and, and, it, and it looks piddly. You know, uh, so it's, it's here's looking at you, Maserati MC20. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a bit of a trick. You know, um, I remember when I was started with Mercedes Benz on the SLR design and they they gave me minimum dimensions. You know, the, the studio and the engineers gave me minimum dimensions because they said anything smaller than that didn't have any road presence. And I pointed out that the F1 was about a meter smaller. Yeah, that's SLR is a weird car because it's <laughs> physically huge on the outside, and it's actually quite cramped on the inside. It's not that hugeness doesn't make it into the cabin at all. Yeah, from the steering wheel to the front of the bonnet is uh, front of the hood is exactly one kilometer. Oh, oh, okay, interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that that were you uh, were you a fan of the uh, the finished product with the SLR? Did you did, were you happy with how that car came out? No, I don't like it at all. Really, um, the, <laughs> I knew uh, I would like him. <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of the engineering. Uh, it was all um, carbon fiber and carbon fiber body, but to make the monocoque at that rate at up to 700 a year, uh, we had to invent a completely new way of of um, making uh, making the uh, the carbon and then i made the, the components as few as possible for the monocoque and we robot bonded them together so i was really proud of the manufacturing system and also the um the stiffness and the strength of the uh of the chassis and the car the design was um, lovely but as an overall motor car it's just not my sort of car and the engine was really lazy and uh, it's a horrible thing the it was a the gearbox was tough. It was that five speed slush box that really kind yeah. of sucked the life out of it. You know, I, I I can't stand automatics like that. You know, the torque converter type automatic. So yeah. I was determined to try and make it. We we couldn't. We didn't have the budget to do uh, two gearboxes to do a manual gearbox. And Mercedes wanted to use the 
standard box anyway. And, and I knew nothing about slush boxes, but we opened it up uh, because the sort of control system sits underneath the box with all the hydraulics. And I found if we remachined all the ports in that hydraulic control system, we got the gear change about three times faster than the standard car, but it was still not brilliant, to be honest. Yeah. Um, History's been kind to that car, though. They depreciated yeah. for a while, and now they're actually worth... I'm surprised at how quickly they have rebounded in terms they, of collectability, they, they, haven't they? They are. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to say it's a bad car. As a Continental Crusher, it's it's just mind-boggling because it's it's got a compressor on it running at around one bar, so you've got nearly 11 liters worth of torque, and and it whistles across the continent. You know, it's it's a great GT car, um, but because. I wanted a sports car, and I don't think they knew what they wanted. The car, the poor old car, doesn't know what it wants to be. Mm, yeah, I, uh, my pal Jay Leno here in Los Angeles loves his SLR, and I've debated, yeah. I've debated with him endlessly about it. And he said it's the only one of his quote 200 mile an hour cars, uh, F1 accepted. He said that will do that will actually do 200 any condition, anytime, anywhere. You know, he said the the power delivery is dead to nuts reliable is the phrase that he he used, yeah. and I and I believe that, but it didn't interest yeah. me all that much. Yeah, I mean it's 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 not. I'm not trying to say it's a terrible car. It's just not my sort of car. It's yeah. a Mercedes. You know that, yeah. that yeah. first and foremost. You know it's more it's more Mercedes than McLaren. I think the engineering was definitely McLaren. You know the carbon stuff and the yeah. nice forged forged aluminium wishbones and stuff. That was all good stuff. Was that uh, manufacturing technology that you described carried forward into future product that was a little more to your liking? Yeah, de yeah definitely. Uh, a lot of people do um, uh, even faster carbon now with pressed carbon, for example. Uh, an SMC carbon. Um, so yeah, people. That, that was a great stepping stone from a, from a composite manufacturing point of view. Yeah, I actually and wanted I, to ask you, like, you know, you've been designing and engineering cars for so long. What advancements in the manufacturing technology have you been the most excited about, or maybe benefited the most from? Like, was it was it carbon and and how accessible that was, or is it computing power? No, it's definitely uh, structural composites, absolutely, because I've been into structural composites uh, literally all my working life. Um, I designed, I designed, I never got to build it before I built my first racing car in 66. In about 64, 65, as a teenager, I designed a little plywood, bonded plywood motor car with a motorcycle engine in it, and I never got around to doing it because I... By the time I got round to doing it, I was of an age where I could go racing, so I built a proper racing car. Um, and then in 1974, I did a composite rear wing on a Formula One car, which was the first structural composite in Formula One. And then 76 carbon brakes. We were six years ahead of anybody else carbon brakes. 76, uh, did you say, for carbon brakes? Yep. And wow. then, and then oh we were- Oh my God, I had no idea they went back that far. Well, That's well, wild. Brabham didn't have a press and PR department, so you know various people have gone down in history for introducing stuff because we just didn't shout about it. We just turned <laughs> up. Oh my God, yeah, that's we, wild! We had a six-year advantage on McLaren with carbon brakes, and then we introduced—I introduced structural carbon in the monocoque for the first time in '78, three years ahead of McLaren. 
Um, and we had our own autoclave. We were the first team to have a rolling road wind tunnel, which I designed and built. And a first, a first Formula One team to have a, our own autoclave. Um, I, had a, I modified a ship's boiler and made an autoclave so we could make <laughs> it in car. Wow. That's awesome. So you guys, you guys, you and Bravin went to Mars in 85. You just didn't tell anyone because you didn't have a press department. That's what it that, sounds that's, like. That's exactly it. <laughs> that's, amazing. that's amazing. Wow. You modified a ship's boiler. So what did you, did you say? Well, okay, I need well, I need something that will fit a monocoque and is very tough was, under pressure. <laughs> no, Matt, it was to do with the cost. So uh, our budget, <laughs> my business partner for 14 years was Bernie Eccleston. And uh, our the irony of, of not having a press department with that with that guy as a partner. <laughs> anyway, so we had uh, we had a budget a fraction of sort of Ferrari and McLaren and people like that, and the the composites um, came first, and then the wind tunnel. So I, I noticed that jet fighters were starting to use more and more structural composites. Uh, in the, like a tailplane and stuff like that, and I looked, I looked up um, what it was and how it was made, and I thought if we're going to develop it, we need to keep it all secret and keep it in house, so we can't get. There were companies with autoclaves making aerospace stuff, but I decided to do it in house. But an autoclave, even in those days, was 150 grand, and uh, that was more than our year annual budget. So I didn't even bother to go to Burning. <laughs> but all all an autoclave is is a pressure pressure vessel, yeah, um, hooker basically. So I found a company up north that made ship spoilers, and I drew one uh, with the right di diameter and the right door locking mechanism, and I used our chief mechanic's name so they didn't know it was Brabham, and it cost six and a half grand. Um, That's awesome. And then for the oven, we built our own oven. Uh, the only thing we had to buy was the electronic control system and for the cooling system i bought a scrap domestic a 600 gallon water tank for a house from a scrapyard and a radiator and electric fan from an old truck and we made our own cooling system for that's a couple of awesome <laughs> you sure you're not a kiwi that I'm sounds amazed. awful kiwi to me <laughs> that sounds like a, a new zealand engineering uh, solution right there that's incredible well, we i never heard that story before we didn't have the budget it was the same with the, with the wind tunnel because i was i've always been into aerodynamics you know long before people had wind tunnels i was experimenting with um underbody airflow and stuff and uh, i i thought this ground effect it was approaching and, and it was with us. We needed to have our own wind tunnel because we were using Southampton University, which is a hell of a trip, you know, with a model in the boots of a car. Or I used to shoot down on a motorbike. Um, they used to take the model down in the boot of a car and then I'd shoot down on, on my bike. Um, and we were down there three or four days a week in between Grand Prix. And Do, I, uh, I decided, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said I decided that we ought to have our own. And I got a quote um, from a company for one and a half million dollars. <laughs> and I bothered to go back to Bernie. <laughs> so I, I bought a book on wind tunnel design and designed my own and built it for 160 grand. So we were the first Formula One team with a rolling road wind tunnel. Wow. Wow. That is I'm so infinitely impressed. How important was the, the rolling road aspect of the, the motion With, of the wheels to be included as part of that measurement? It, it, it's, it's the motion of the wheels uh, which, have, which interact with the total airflow, of course. But the main thing is uh, the way ground effect works 
you can't measure it statically because it's the action it's the sheer action of the of the air and the ground acting between the ground and the underside of the car and the thickness of the boundary layer that's really important so i knew we had to have a rolling road so we designed our own kevlar belt great big rollers and electric motor and stuff um the most expensive bit was we had to dig the road up because the cable to start the fan um when we switched it on, it used to dim everybody's house lights and Jesse. Better put a bigger cable in. Oh, I know about that infrastructure. Don't get me started. I know how many amp. Do you remember how many amps it, it drew? I can't know. It you was know, I, about. A, I think the fan was about twelve or fourteen feet or something. It's quite a big fan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so with the rolling road, it is. It's actually. It's more like a treadmill than it is like an all-wheel drive dyno, right? You need the actual yeah. movement of the road, and in order to get a proper ground effect measurement, that road's got to go real fast. It does, and it has to be exactly the same speed as the air. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Wow, man, that is a that is a just the engineering of that belt must be really really wild. We we learnt a lot. Yeah, we also learned that you had to um, so so you reduce the because when you're doing a it's a thing called um, it's a scale effect with aerodynamics and it's when you go down to a scale model, various things don't scale down very well and one of them is the boundary layer which is a slow moving air just above the road. That doesn't scale down. So what we had to do was remove the boundary layer at the beginning of the belt. So we had a thin slot and a suction fan just to take the boundary layer off so we got more accurate readings. We learned so much in the first two years. That's so wild to build your own. What's so incredible to me is is we we always just, you know, F1 is such an expensive endeavor. It always seems like every team has unlimited money all the time. Mm. And yet you did have some constraints. And, you know, you did have to kind of get really creative in solving these problems. That's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, we, we had no money in those days. Um, we used does, to travel. Does to, it motivate you to have those budget constraints? Does it force you to get really creative? Absolutely. That's that's definitely true. Um, you know, it, get, it gets you thinking and it gets you thinking laterally and sort of thinking outside the box, if you like. Um, building the wind tunnel because a wind tunnel walls have to be very very rigid and very smooth and uh, for the quality of the airflow so they're, not, they're normally concrete and then they're polished or painted or they're steel and they're egg, they're egg crated behind the steel so they're stiff enough and mm. both of those are just way outside our budget because the walls are you know it's, it's a big thing wind tunnel so i found a i found a company up north newcastle way that had a press 50 feet by 10 feet, and they made composite walls for thermal trucks, you know, for thermally insulated trucks. Oh, yeah, for like refrigerated trucks. Yeah, that's, oh, that's cool. That makes sense. Exactly. About, about four inches thick, and they had, they had a, a gel coat glass fiber white finish, very smooth on both sides. And I built it like a Meccano kit, you know, with, with the corners all bolted together, and it arrived on these flatbed trucks, and we just... In three months, we just bolted it together. We had a wind tunnel. Oh, did the did the little rivets affect the flow, or was that small enough that it was no, okay? No, we had we had all the all the attachments were in the outside skin. It was oh, opposite. yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, two skins with a foam core. That's that is real cool. So, did you then, uh, when you were doing the road cars, were you like, I know where I can develop this stuff, and or by then was it was it were there more uh, resources available? 
No, no, we developed the um, we developed the SLR in that in, in that same tunnel. That's crazy. Is <laughs> yeah. still is it still in use? It's not still in use, it is was, it? It was it was in use up until two years ago. Formula Three team bought the Chessington building, uh, which used to be uh, Brabham and then Activa with Yamaha after that. And up until two years ago, when they banned the use of wind tunnels in Formula Three, it was still being used, and the autoclave is still being used. No way. That <laughs> is so incredible. That's awesome. Proof that what you what you did uh, worked. Um, you, you seem like a person in general who d- kind of doesn't want to take no for an answer. So whether there's like a budget constraint saying no, we can't have a wind tunnel, or um, I heard a story when you were talking to Cosworth about I think the uh, when you were developing the engine for the T33, they said, "Ooh, I don't know if we can do it with this size," and you kind of push forward. Where did that? come from this this drive whether it's mathematical or financial or almost the laws of physics where you go mm, i'm going to see if there's a way around that uh, you know i've i've always been like that I, I was born and grew up in south africa and uh i was in a working class family and we we never had anything so my dad was a motor mechanic all his life and we, he never bought anything he made everything you know if if, if we were going camping he made a tent so we couldn't buy we didn't buy a tent wow. you know if we uh, if we had all my all my bicycles and tricycles were handmade in the early days when i was four five six um and i suppose that it was from my dad the racing came as well because he, he used to race bikes before motorbikes before the war and and as a family we used to go a lot, a lot of races but ever since then i've just i've just had a sort of an inventive mind i think even when we, we were kids. We, four of us were brought up in a one-bedroom flat. My mum, my dad, my brother, and I were all in one bedroom. So you had to make your own entertainment. And I used to make, I used to get the dining room chairs in the bedroom and put blankets over them when I was about seven or eight, and make spaceships and submarines and charge the kids down the road for rides. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good hustle. Wow! <laughs> I will sell you my imagination. Yeah. That is what you're doing. That's Still doing it. Still, that is still doing it for three million bucks. Yeah, but these move. <laughs> these move. It's just I think I think I've just always been like that, you know. I, yeah. I, I have these sometimes, you know, you know the old uh, bit about hot bath and having ideas. Well, it actually sort of works with me. Not so much a hot bath, but it, I, I wake up in the middle of the night. I was keeping a notebook next to my bed and wake up in the middle of the night and write something down and then go and see if I can make it work the next day. It just never stops, really. I can't stop my head. <laughs> what do you What do you do to try if you want If you wanted to stop your head, what do you uh, do? What do you do? I, the only thing I've ever done where you really, really can't think about anything else is I had um, up until about ten years ago. Um, I had a whole lot of trials bikes, competition, mm. Trials mm. Bikes, and trialing. I, I built a trials course in the in the garden here, and. Uh, when you're when you're concentrating on going up a bank or a hill or a wall or whatever, you can't think about any. Well, if you think about something else, you fall on your head, basically. Yeah, motorbikes um, or pedal bikes? Uh, no, motorbikes. Um, this is yeah, this I'm, is where you like hop up stumps yeah. and rock piles and stuff like that, right? Yeah, Isn't that, that's what we're talking about. That's it. Yeah, that seems dangerous and hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always been into bike. I just. I, I've, this is my 60th year of riding motorbikes, and to celebrate, I went to the Isle of Man with a couple of mates three weeks ago, and just did a week's riding around the Isle of Man. So I've been, 
I've been to the Isle of Man 35 times now. Amazing. What is your, uh, uh, do you, I mean, I imagine your philosophy towards sports cars does have a parallel in, in motorcycles, but what are some of your, your favorite uh, motorcycles to ride? Well, I've had, over the years, I've had um, a lot of Ducatis. My first Ducati was 750 F1, then an 888 SP3, I think, and then 916 SP4, which I've still got. Uh, and I've got, I've, I've pared down the road bikes now. I've got quite a few dirt bikes, but I've pared down the road bike. Um, and I've just bought a R. R1250 RS BMW Sports Tourer, which I took to the island to get used to. Uh, but for every day, once again, lightweight and simple, I've got one of these um, sort of replica cafe races, a single cylinder 535 Royal Enfield. Oh, yeah. Continental oh. GT. Oh, the Continental GT. Yeah, I rode one of those as a demo. It was cool. It was very nice, actually. I really yeah, liked it. Right. Just a ride to work on a single that, that you can hear three miles away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a Spitfire. It sounds yes. like like vintage aircraft, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in summer, I'm either on uh, to work every day. I'm either on a bike or on a classic car. I never drive a modern car in summer. Good for you. Do you I was uh, my next question was do you do you have a, a sentimentality towards classic cars or are you always sort of looking yeah. at at the next thing? So what are what are your choice choices for classic Ooh. cars? Oh my goodness. I've got I think I've got 49 or something at the oh, moment. So. Nice. Good man. His collection, <laughs> the collection is, is sick. Amazing. Do you, have a, do you have a photo? I'll try to find one. Um and I don't what well go through it, but like what is the lightest car you own? You you're you're really focused on lightweight as we know, but your collection is yeah, incredible. The, the lightest car I own is actually a, a racing car that I built in nineteen seventy two when when I packed up racing in South Africa to sell everything to come to the UK, jumped on a cargo boat in sixty nine to get over here. It's the cheapest um cheapest passage I could find. Um, I wanted to continue driving and I uh, should have looked in the mirror and seen I was six foot four, but never mind. <laughs> I wanted to continue driving. And the cheapest formula was a thing called Formula 750, where you could build a car literally for a couple of hundred quid in those days, where you had to use a Reliant 750 engine, gearbox, and back axle. And I did an ultra, ultra radical car. They were around 350 kilos, and this one weighs 280. Wow. Uh, that's like and, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So that's my that's my lightest car. But I think I worked out. I've got of the forty nine cars. I think I've got thirty eight under nine hundred kilos. Oh my god! Well, Zach is Zach. I'm, the reason I'm looking away from the camera is because Zach has pulled up what appears to be your your garage. Yes. Or, um, <laughs> wow! And me, you have some heavy hitters in there. Thirty eight wow. cars under nine hundred kilograms. Thirty eight cars under nine hundred kilograms is, is a that's a. That is a theme, you know. I, I, it really, it really makes you kind of roll your eyes at someone who goes, "Yeah, all my cars are white," you know, <laughs> or "All my cars are red," or "All my cars are Italian." Keeping them all <laughs> under under that weight—that is amazing. Wow. I just so, love little cars, particularly from the '60s. You know. Uh huh. Well, that I mean that uh, that seems to inspire your current projects, the T50 and and the T33, yep. which I think find really interesting ways to look both forward and backwards at the same time. Yeah. Um, tell me about uh, the idea to go with the fan. 
That was because, little known fact, the F1 had two fans removing boundary layer from the diffuser. Um, it was an idea I had. I'd the like, production want... car had two fans? It has. Every single one has two fans doing no exactly. Way. Yep. Little known fact. It's in the book, Driving Ambition. I think it's page 80-something. Um, and I just had an idea because the diffuser... If you get too steep on a diffuser, the air stalls, and it, it's always aggravated me on racing cars that you can't you can't have active air. You know, we got away with it on the fan car because its primary function was cooling. Um, so I thought on a road car, there's no regs. Why don't I try and just remove all the boundary? They have a very steep diffuser instead of a gradual one to make it more efficient and remove the boundary layer. So we had two fans about I don't know six inch diameter and hidden in the flank of each uh, wing, rear wing, and uh, they removed the boundary layer. And we got about a 5% increase in efficiency when we switched the fans on. But they were only acting over a few inches of diffuser. And I, I put the idea in the bank, if you like, and I thought if ever I do another supercar, I'll try and do a bigger fan and run it over the full width of the diffuser, which is exactly what 50 does. Is it, do you have, when, when a technology like the fan gets banned from professional racing for one reason or another do you then bank that as i'm going to put that in a road car in 40 years is there a, is there a list of banned yeah. racing technology that that appeals yeah. to you yeah i suppose so yeah because i i love the fact you know a lot of people close to me when i stopped racing in 89 to start mclaren cars that said, oh, you're not going to like road cars. You know, there's regulations on where, how high the lights are, and you have to have this and that and all the rest of it. But there's no performance regs. You know, there's yeah, there's regulations on race cars too. Like it's not, yeah. it's not like racing is a totally unlimited <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I couldn't believe the freedom we had, which is why you know the the, the F1 was the the first carbon car, of course, and central seat, but but it also had active brake cooling um, first on a car. It had a remote telemetry um, where we could interrogate a car anywhere around the world. That was a first. It had, yeah, it was a 14.4 yeah. modem, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's those things that you couldn't do in racing. I just, my, my head went crazy when I did the F1. So when you have a, a car like, like the T50, in, and I haven't driven one. I've never seen one in person. I've just heard it go around Goodwood and yowza. Is that, that is a sound. Um, is it – what are your, uh, your, your parameters for this type of car? I mean, you said with the F1 you drove a bunch of contemporary cars and you didn't like various things. And, and so how did the thought process go with uh, T50 and subsequently with T33? Exactly. With 50, it was exactly the same driver as uh, the F1. I didn't care about performance. It just, you know, people said, well, it did 240 miles an hour. I did, but I, I didn't. The only reason we had to calculate top speed was to choose the gear ratios, basically. I wasn't interested in any performance figures. I just wanted to make the best car to drive, the best engineered car, and the best driving, driving experience you, you could have in a motor car. Well, at the time um, uh, that when the F1 was uh, was a manual gearbox, there there was uh, there were semi-automated gearboxes in 
actual Formula One, and Ferrari had it was almost there with Ferrari. So, did you make a conscious choice to keep that car manual, and you could have made it paddles, Absolutely. or was that just the best at no, the time? It was never going to be anything else because I wanted the driver to be involved in that. You know, changing gear is a, is a big part of the driving experience. Um, so the target for T50 was exactly the same. Best engineering um, ever, uh, best engine ever, same as the F1, and the best driving experience. Couldn't give a monkey's what the 0-100, 0-60 top speed is, and I still don't care. Do you think you're going to have any accidental records with the T50 like you did with the F1? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I think I think it. I think it's going to remain the lightest road car probably forever. <laughs> Sport uh, supercar, I mean. Well, with it's ironic that with the F one, you know that you weren't going for top speed, and yet that top speed record stayed for sixteen years, mm-hmm. eighteen until Veyron, right? Mm-hmm. Sixteen, eighteen I, I, years. Yeah, I think it's still the fastest normally aspirated car. I think it. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but but then you have the fan, right? Which is this wild technology applied to uh, sort of an otherwise old school formula. Uh huh. So, how does the fan? change the feel of the car does it just make it feel like it has wings without having wings no not at all the the, the downforce targets are not huge on on the t50 but the aero is much much more efficient than the f1 because of the fan and the other fun thing is we can do we can give the driver some control because on the f1 um, the only thing you can do is select high downforce mode which pops the little spoiler up and gives you i think 30 percent more downforce or something um, on on 50, we've got several driver selectable modes, and uh, you can reduce drag by 12.5% if you want to cruise along the motorway. So what happens with um, ground effect supercars is the, the downforce builds up as a square of the uh, speed, and as you get over 100 miles an hour, you're just keeping, you keep building the downforce, and you use up suspension travel. And some of the supercars I've driven quickly in Europe um, get really uncomfortable because they haven't got much suspension uh, left. So we actually use the fan in reverse. The fan doesn't reverse, but we use the fan effect to store uh, the diffuser as well. And we can dump down force and dump drag. So there's what we call a streamline mode. And then the fan fills the e-flux. The e-flux of the fan fills the void behind the car and makes it a, a virtual long-tailed motor car. Oh, see, that is cool. I'm into that. This is it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. Did you, when you, because uh, it's Cosworth uh, V12, right? Yeah. How, I mean, and for anyone out there who has not heard clips of this thing running on track, it is wild sounding. Um, you know, the F1 sounds great, but it's it's not uh, it's not a screamer. It sounds technical, I think, in, in a lot of ways. This yeah. is a screamer. And um, what what did you what did you do to tune the sound, or did it just naturally sound that great? Nothing. So far, nothing. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a, the so only, there you, there's your fun accident right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, actually. The only thing we will tune is the F1's got a lovely induction sound through the roof. Mm. And I tuned the thickness of the roof on the F1 to get that sound as good as I, I could. 
Yeah, on the um, drawing I saw it from your sketchbook, it said loudspeaker next to yeah, that uh, you, particular drawing. Go. Yeah, so I, that's the one thing we are tuning at the moment is the induction sound. Uh, but the exhaust is just as it came out, according to Cosworth. Um, and it's, it's, it's fantastic the way it is. I, I won't touch it. It's, I mean, it's, it, is, it is the best sound that you will hear all day if it's, you go it's, find it. It's wild. Honestly, Matt, it's quite simply, having driven the car several times now, it's quite simply the best motor that's ever been produced for a road car. It's just fantastic. In, in any way, shape, or form, the engine pickup speed, uh, the, the torque delivery is mind-boggling. When I grew up in the 60s, I, I was an engine designer before I was a chassis designer, so I can, I can do engines and gearboxes as well. Um, but in the 60s, you either had power and revs, or you had torque, and you couldn't have both. And Cosworth, you can't believe how this thing picks up from 2,000 revs. It's you, you'd swear it was a six-liter motor. Does it have? Does it when it's no turbos? So does it have? No. Uh, you know what? It, what does it do that makes it do what no other engine can do by making that type of torque at such a low RPM? Cosworth, it's just Cosworth expertise. It helps, of course, that the car is light. So, yeah. you know, it's not got a lot to roll off when you when you roll the torque on. But um, Cosworth have amazing expertise with normally aspirated engines, just amazing. Uh, it, nowadays, with, of course, variable valve timing on both cans, and they've got um, a low injector and a high injector, and they play off the injection position. And they've also got little tumblers in the inlet duct down into the valve, the inlet valve, that they can activate to get different amounts of, um, different types of combustion for different types of torque. And Whoa. of course, on top of that, you've got your, your ignition timing and your fueling. And they mix all that together in a lovely pot of equation. And, uh, and they give you what you want. I mean, the torque delivery is just ridiculous. It's got 70% of max torque at 2.5 for an engine that revs For an NAV12, that's, and yeah, and for, for something small with such, high, such high RPM capability as well. That's 12, amazing. 12,500 redline? It's, it's, it's got a hard stop at 12.4. <sighs> 70% of torque at 2,500 RPM. That's not that high above a modern turbo engine that makes peak torque at like 1800 RPM, yeah. but it's not that far away. That's that's ridiculous. A power band yeah. 10,000 RPM wide? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can leave it in whatever gear you want. And that's crazy. Uh, there's, a great, there's a great trick you can play with 50, which is you can pull off in first gear without using the throttle. That's how smooth the torque is. And then you can change the second, third, fourth, and fifth without touching the throttle. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's and and is the and is that it's a regular idle right? It's like a nine hundred r something RPM. No, no, idle. no. It revs, it revs at it doesn't have a flywheel, so it revs at twelve hundred. It doesn't have a flywheel. What? Well, I want I wanted the fastest pickup of any engine ever. Um, <laughs> and so and it's it you know it's just it's got titanium valves, hollow titanium valves, titanium rods. Um, the most beautiful little 13 kilo crank. You know, it's it's just no flywheel. I'm still I'm dumbfounded by the no flywheel, and yet you can take off without adding any throttle. That's not well, a, that is not a combination I expected. Well, a 60 degree V12, the primary balance. We are actually 65, but 
it does make too much difference at five degrees to the primary balance. Uh, a 60 degree V12 is naturally balanced, so you shouldn't need a flywheel. It's funny because I did the same thing on the F1. I was sitting with Paul Russia, you know, lovely engine designer is no longer with us. He was a really good mate of mine too. And I was sitting in Germany and he had a team of five guys designing the engine for the, the S70 stroke two engine for the F1. And I would say to Paul, I don't want a flywheel because I want the fastest the response time of any engine ever. And and one of his senior guys said, you can't do a road car without a flywheel. And Paul Rusher, I'll never forget it, Paul Rusher turned to him and said, have you ever tried? And the guy said, no. He said, well, don't say no until you've tried. And the F1 has no flywheel either. No. Well, I, wow. I, I'm learning many new things today. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Because a lot of, I mean, a, a, you know, just conventionally, I've driven a bunch of different cars that have lightened flywheels. Typically Porsches, a lot of Porsches, flat sixes, lightened flywheels. And what ends up happening is they stall a lot. <laughs> they're annoying. They, they, they just, they're harder to, to take yeah. off from a, from a stop. And a lot of race cars that do that kind of stuff too. Um, and they stall a lot. But I guess... I guess with the right engine, it's all about having the right engine. Then it can be yeah, done. The right engine, uh, absolutely, yeah. And the combination of a lightweight car and, and uh, the right engine just gives you an amazing response. And with the T33 engine, I went back to Cosworth and I said, right, I'm knocking it back. Because honestly, 12.4 for a road engine is right on the ragged edge with valve springs. <laughs> and um, so I went back and I said, right, with with 33 I want it to be even more usable so I'll, I'll give you a thousand revs we'll slice a thousand revs off the top so it only revs to 11 and uh, does that just to... add longevity really to the motor more than anything no, no, else no, no, or is not, it not that. no no the motor's guaranteed for I think it's 50,000 miles so we've got to make sure it does 150,000 to cover that um, no it's not so much that it's it's the fact that I wanted the engine to be even more usable on the 33. So um, what they've done is they've, they've redone the cylinder heads and the cam and the cam timing and everything again on 33, taking advantage of the fact you don't have to go to 12. And the, and the T33 engine has 75% of max torque at 2.5, but it has 90% of max torque from, from 4,000 to 11,000, 90%. Wow. That's awesome. I've just never heard stats like this. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, I mean, you hear about this from like high-end Ducati motors on the Desmos and stuff like that, but that's about it. You don't hear yeah. about it in cars. Yeah. <laughs> and is there, because your goal seems to be involvement and not outright um, performance, do you have, do you actually have any benchmarks for Dyn dynamic performance does it have to do uh, zero to 60 or zero to 100 or a certain top speed or a certain lap time do you care at all not at all that's awesome Is to care about the to care about the that it goes to 12 8 but then not care at all about what comes out the other end I, I really, wild we when we first announced the car it was going to be around thousand kilos and it only had 670 horsepower we had a lot of, not a lot, but we had some people go, well, that's, what do you mean, only 670? Is the, is the car going to feel quick? I've driven it, and I know it's quick, but, you know, if anybody thinks that doesn't feel quick, it's got a better power-to-weight ratio than a LaFerrari. It's got a better power-to-weight ratio than a P1 GTR McLaren. 
So if anybody thinks it's not going to feel quick, then better yeah. think again. <laughs> You know, to, to to stay on the point of being fast and feeling fast, the I've said over and over that the very fastest stuff that you can buy today, it's almost too fast. I mean, yeah. if you're not, I just went for a ride, and I've talked about it a bunch, in the Aston Vulcan, uh, the AMR Valkyrie. Pro. Excuse me, Valkyrie, the Valkyrie, the $5 right. million. Dollar, and this was with Andy Prio. Uh, and um, I don't know if you can see my size, but it was not comfortable. <laughs> it was it was not, and it doesn't even look like a real car. It's a it's a Lama prototype, and um, there there is a he possibly did the fastest lap around Laguna Seca with a passenger ever with uh, with me in the car. He did a one eighteen uh, around Laguna with me in the car on the the middle setting, which is just batshit. And they're just selling this to people. You just turn up with money and and you can have it. What do you feel about these cars that are really pushing those limits of, of performance and then being sold to regular folks? I think what happens is, I mean, there's people that are interested in owning those cars, I'm sure, and, and you know, they, they sell them, so they must be. But when you, the, the problem is people get carried away and they don't stop to think when you have any sort of performance target whether it's a lap time in the case of the valkyrie or whether it's a top speed or whether it's a zero to 100 or whatever you compromise so much of the motor car to just hit that one target which is why i was determined that we wouldn't have any targets and the thing then would be the best driving experience anybody could have like the f1 was you know the F1 wasn't particularly, it was quick in, in, in its time. It was a very fast car in its time, acceleration-wise, but it wasn't, you know, it was still usable. Um, it gets to the point, I think you're, at, you're actually, once again, you're right, because I, I was about to buy uh, Ducati Pagnali, um, you know, 215 horsepower. And luckily, somebody lent me, um, Yamaha actually lent me uh, their latest R1, which also had 200 horsepower. And I tried so many times to get full throttle and to use the power. <laughs> and you, you just can't. You, know, you, look, you look down and you're suddenly doing 140 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. I think Chris and Harris I, got a Panigale and he said he had it for a year or something. And he said, I don't think I've got full throttle once. I'm terrified of this thing. <laughs> Whereas the Continental GT, um, you know, that that's just a grin going to it puts a grin on your face going to work you know it's but i don't know what speed that can do it's it's such a slow thing you know I yeah mean, it feels okay but you can have just as much fun you know if anybody doubts what what a lightweight car feels like i always say to them jump in the the light car company rocket that little bike uh, engine car i designed uh, Jay well, that's easier said bike. than done. I've I've personally seen two of those in my life. Yeah, <laughs> the odds, so the odds of, oh, just so how many of those did you build? Forty-seven. Yeah, the odds of anybody seeing one in person, let alone driving one, are small. <laughs> but but your but your logic, I mean, an Ariel Adam, you know, or or something yeah. like that would you know would would get that vibe across as well. Yeah. Jay, Jay's Point got taken. A he does. He drives it, you know. Um, I saw Jay's and I saw Bruce Canapa uh, has one as as well up in his uh, collection. Unfortunately, it seems awesome. They've shot up in price recently. That um, there's a long waiting list for them. But uh, that that car that had 147 horsepower and it weighed 370 kilos, 
and on road tires around Silverstone, Brands Hatch, and Goodwood, it's faster than a competition LM F40 Ferrari. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're making a, you're making a very strong argument for the lightweight cars, sir. You really are. What is your favorite? Uh, I'm sure you've heard the expression "slow car fast." What is your favorite slow car fast? Your favorite slow uh, car to drive really quickly? Uh, Lotus Elan. Yeah, I've got I've got two of them. Yeah. And you said that was what you said? Perfect steering. Yeah, I mean just everything, and the, that little twin cam is just the way it delivers torque and and revs 3D. It's a wonderful combination of free revving and torque again. I love motors. It's funny you can have almost by accident sometimes you can have a, just a magic motor that just delivers. Uh, just such a lovely experience, and that little Lotus twin cam. I've got, I've got, I've got that in two lands. I've also got a, a Lotus twenty three B with that twin cam in it, and uh, and a Lotus Europa twin cam. Um, and I just love that little engine. The the one that's close is um, the Maserati brothers. When the, when the family broke up, they formed a company called Oscar. Oh yeah, uh, and they Oscar. did a little. Oscar 1600 GT, uh, which I've got, uh, a Zagato-bodied one, and they made a little 1600 twin cam for that, and that's a lovely little motor too. What um, do you with with all those cars in your collection? Do you have a, a caretaker? Do you have a staff for that? Uh, I've got well, my, my. We've been in this little cottage here for 47 years now, and and. When, when our son left home, we turned it into a one-bedroom house. And my wife thinks that having 22 garages and one bedroom is the wrong proportion. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> so a lot of them are here, but the rest of them I keep over in the company at Windlesham at our new HQ. And we've got guys there. The, the guys help me out and look after them. Um, I tinker uh, with them myself, you know, if I'm going, I'm going on a... Funny enough, this weekend I'm off. Tomorrow morning I'm off on a classic car rally for four days. Um, oh, cool! What are you taking? I'm driving the Elan. Actually, I've just bought. I just bought a two seven five GTB four, um, which is what I wanted to take, but I don't fit. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're you're actually you're you're quite tall, so you have to. I like when tall people design cars. I'm six foot. Yeah, you know, three. So when yeah. tall people design cars, I can usually find a way to fit. I can fit. Yeah. I fit in an F one. I drove an F one one time, uh, very briefly. It was absolutely life changing and glorious, and it did not disappoint in any way. Um, oh, even though my drive was very short, I'd love to have a like a real go uh, at some point. But I was shocked that I could fit. But it's always great when the tall people design the cars. Yeah, yeah. I always design cars around myself. So even a rocket, you know, we I had one one guy, Russell Bolgen. He he was six seven. He drove a rocket. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had I have a I have a customer here at my shop who's uh on the on the heftier side kind of like me and he had uh, uh, a BAC build him a, a mono that will fit him he got he oh. got molded for the mono and he said I can have a go because because I I can fit in it which I'm very excited about they have a mm. special they have a special America mono that's meant for <laughs> that's meant for us. <laughs> Well, you get to drive a T fifty one day, I'm sure, and that's an F one, but just but just better in every way. So it's uh, you know that, that you hopefully get a longer go in that. 
What did you um, when you when you're benchmarking things like the the pedal feel and the shifter feel for uh, the T50 and the T33? What are what are you thinking about in terms of what the comparable benchmarks are today? Uh, it's just stuff. Every time I drive something or ride something that that has a particular discipline that is good or, or to my liking, I make a note of it. A good example is the uh, I've got a Mark One Cortina GT uh, with a 1740 and 130 horsepower engine, much quicker than a Lotus Cortina, and that gear change in that car has got the right amount of click, the right rifle bolt, and the right amount of throw. It's just a bit wide on the crossgate. I like narrow crossgates on an H pattern. Mm. Uh, uh, so that was my benchmark for this car. Um, or better than the F1, and the F1's pretty good. But I, I only use nine degrees crossgate, so, which is what we used to use on the old Formula One cars that had manual boxes. Um, so you've got to get used to that. But when you do, it's very satisfying because there's not much of an H, if you know what I mean. You just yeah. push the lever at an angle. and it You have to have really good self-centering for that, too, to make sure you end you, up in the right do. gate, too. Yeah, you, you, you do, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, how so interesting. That's a little I got inspiration from my some of my little Abarth racing cars for that gear lever. Just it's very simple titanium stalk, um, yeah, nice and simple. All the mechanism is on show underneath that. Oh, I love when you can see the linkage. So good. Pagan, Pagani did it pretty well. Spiker, Spiker did a Spiker's shift linkage. That was just epic. That was beautiful yeah. bit of design, wasn't it? Spikers yeah. are cool. They're finally being rewarded by being worth money. They, they were worth nothing for a while. <laughs> they ever drive a spiker, Gordon? They're kind of cool. I haven't actually, no. They're pretty, they're really rowdy. I mean, they, they have no traction control and the weight distribution is kind of wonky. Um, but they are, they're loose in a very, in a very fun way. It's not, it's not what you'd expect because they look kind of refined, but they drive kind of wild and sloppy. And actually, I like that. I find it to be charming. And look at that steering wheel. I mean, it's like, you know, not so. It's very Pagani, isn't it? It is. It it's is. it's like uh, it's somewhere between the French and the Italians, and you know, it's yeah. like a tiller in that thing. Yeah. But here's the shift linkage, which is that shift linkage. Gorgeous. I mean, that is a that is a bit of design. That's lovely. Gordon's looking at the leather and just going, "That's so heavy." <laughs> Cross stitching adds forty two grams. Uh, we can't do that. <laughs> what is your most? That which brings me to an interesting question. What is your most? Um, I love hearing about the obsessive ways in which people find to cut very seemingly minuscule amounts of weight. What are some of your most ridiculous weight-saving measures in the T50 or the T33? Um, probably the most ridiculous one on the F1, um, and it's once again it's an ethos thing. You know, was I did you get a six mil bolt as you know, and you get an eight mil bolt, and you get a ten mil bolt. And we calculated that the throttle bolt was in single shear, that was six mil. The brake pedal uh, in double shear needed, a, needed an eight mil bolt. Uh, but the clutch pedal was, six mil was too small and eight mil was too big. So I had a seven millimeter bolt and nut made for, for the F1 pedal. And on this car, so it costs a hundred dollars a bolt to, <laughs> to save, you know, to save a gram. A gram. <laughs> on, on the on the T50, I was determined to make the pedals even lighter than the 
the F1. And I knew exactly what they all weighed because I designed them all myself. And uh, the pedal on the F1 is cast. And as an anti-slip measure, it's got like little cast, like moon craters, if you like. On uh -huh. it. So your, your feet don't slip and they catch the little edges of the moon craters. So I, I was racking my brains because I drew the pedals on the 50 as well as racking my brains how I could because you can't make the stalk any lighter because that's about strength and stiffness of course uh, the pad has to be a certain size and then I suddenly thought if I just make the pad if I mill out all the middle of the pad and just leave little spidery bits on the pedal and we don't deburr the edges your sole of your foot when you press it on the pedal the sole of your foot will bite into those edges and that'll be your anti-slip. Zach has found a photo and it looks awesome. <laughs> it looks so cool. Yeah, so you're not messing around. We don't deburr those. Uh, so that's that's your anti-slip. And if there's 300 grams lighter than the F1 pedals. So it's like a trellis. If yeah, somebody's yeah. thinking it's like you took you know a trellis bridge, that's the yep. shape. It's just a lot of uh, that is metal really triangles cool. and a lot of empty space yep. in the middle. Wow. And the the titan the um on the f1 another bit of madness was that that throttle pedal is titanium on the f1 it's fabricated titanium so it's a pressed pad and a titanium tube welded to a bush and welded to the pad and of course the weld adds quite a bit of weight um and the fillet for that for the this sort of landing for the fillet of the weld to land on adds a few grams as well so we found a company that could machine that out of solid titanium and it's it's nearly a hundred grams lighter than the F1 pedal. Wow! Yeah, I'm glad I asked this question. You did not disappoint. No, I did not at all. <laughs> is that did they 3D print it? Is that a, is that a technology no, no. that has helped? No, or no, no. Oh uh, no, 3D printing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we use um, there's a the door handles in the car. Uh, I think it's on if some of the video shows we pick one up and show. The door handle is usually a, like an aluminium casting, and it's relatively heavy because it's it's a passenger grip handle mainly um and it helps close and open the door of course uh and we found a company that could make rapid prototype ones uh three printed ones where they can do a 0.7 of a mill skin with a matrix in in the middle and we we got the handle down to 85 grams it, it feels like a pair of sunglasses when you pick it up but they're 600 quid each but um they're very light. Amazing. Everything matters. It all adds up. But you know what I like? You know where he hasn't, they haven't saved weight? It has a round steering wheel. Mm. Thank, as Jeremy Clarkson would say, the baby Jesus for <laughs> the round steering wheel. That's how you know that someone cares about driving. It's, it's, but I think it shows that Gordon doesn't care about weight because if he had cut the top <laughs> and the bottom off of this you could wheel. save 200 grams. But it's also got the steering wheel has a very thin grip, the diameter, um, because uh, I hate thick. I don't know where they started. Somebody one day decided. Yeah, that someone decided it had to be meaty. BMW. BMW, definitely yeah. BMW. They're like people you buy fanoodles a lot. So yeah. how do we put that in the car? <laughs> I've got I've got long fingers and I can't get my hand around the LP steering wheel. You know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so, and the F1 had a very fine diameter wheel, and I've done the same thing on 50. 
That's what, funny. What a car. With them, oh and every single control is analog. There's not the touchscreen anywhere. Um, that is it's, delightful. We, God we bless you, start, sir. <laughs> I mean, every single thing is rotary. We spent, to get the haptic feel I wanted on the rotary switches, because nothing pisses me off more when you you go for a switch and it's got a little bit of shaft movement mm-hmm. or it's got a very soft, weak haptic, you know. And I said to, I found that we found a switch company that could work with us. Uh, and I said, think expensive camera, you know, Pentax. Yeah, Leica. Leica camera. I like that you opened with Pentax, though. Good for you. We're on the same page there. I'm not a Leica man. I'm a Pentax man. I'm with you. And uh, 1.3 million pounds, and 18 months later, I've got the feel I want. (laughs) Credit where it's due. For 4 million bucks, the Chiron has really nice knobs. It it, it it does. It has a great they have great knobs in that car. That's very important. When you get in a car that's expensive or, you know, has some sort of credibility and then you touch a, a control and you're like, How come this feels like this is a thirty thousand dollar control, not yeah. a million or well, and also you have when you have an analog knob, it's like having a manual uh, gear change. Like yep. the car doesn't age; it removes it from the aging curve. It, whether it's now or in twenty years, touch screens and paddle shift gearboxes will start to feel old as the technology moves. But a stick and a knob are forever. Yep. Yeah. True. The rev the rev counter too is uh it's nice and big, huge rev counter and. Uh, there's not a bit of plastic inside. It's all, it's an aluminum uh, front faceplate. The little markers are all in aluminum. The needle is machined from aluminum and uh, it's flood lit, not backlit. So you know, every instrument on the planet now is plastic. And it's a real gauge. It's not, we're not talking about LCD screens here. This is oh, a no, gauge, no, no. right? It's a real, yeah. So to answer me this, we've been lied to. It seems we've been told that the fastest high performance engines can can rev so fast now that analog gauges can't keep up. Remember, Lexus told us this with the LFA. Oh, it has to be digital because the analog gauge can't keep up. And yet here you are with the fastest revving engine in production car history. And you've got a real gauge. Who's lying here? Uh, Well, ours works. (laughs) Cosworth, Cosworth. Cosworth have seen peaks of 50,000 revs a second. Wow. Yeah, so it so, works. So we don't need a digital screen for this. They're just cheaping out and covering their tracks. I mean, this gauge might be more expensive than that's, that's what probably someone's willing to pay. But I do think you have a point that maybe we were lied to because it's cheaper to make an LCD screen or something like that than it yeah. is to make a really, really good you know clock. Yeah. Wow. What do you think, um, Gordon, before we before we let you go, because I know your time is up soon and, and I really appreciate you being with us. You have a, an amazing philosophy that simultaneously looks forward and, and, and a little bit backward. Um, and, and you've clearly got a very cool collection of classic classic cars and, and, and you're trying to build the future and build build the fizz into new product. Simultaneously, we've got major OEMs offering us more speed, more technology, more ease of use, and more, uh, let's call the mass-produced supercar choices than ever before. And what they're doing in order to, to target the, the, real, the real big money is they're doing the throwbacks, right? Bentley is building some extra blowers. Uh, Jaguar's got the continuation E-types. Yeah. You've got, you know, Aston Martin will build you a brand new DB5. You know, what are your thoughts on 
on that as a solution to building driver's products versus what you're doing over here? I, I think it's quite funny uh, what they're doing, but it also, in another in more serious way, it encapsulates exactly what Gold Murray Automotive is about because we actually do both. We're using the latest materials, the latest technology, the latest thinking, but we're, but we're giving that old-fashioned, if you like, driving experience in all that modern technology. And it's the same with the styling. You know, 33 is an expression of my love of all my favorite cars from the 60s, but in no way is it retro. That's a fine balance to hit, you know, to do a car that has all that lovely classic stuff in it, but doesn't look old or doesn't look like a, a, a parody of something. So the thing I love about it, and actually people going back and making new Countaches and all the rest of it, um, actually just proves there's, there's nobody else doing what we're doing. That's what I love about the company. There is nobody on the planet doing, just focusing on the driving experience and the engineering and, and couldn't give a hoot about anything else, you know? Yeah. They, they, you've just, you've just said it actually, you've answered the question because their, their modern product is so sort of uninvolving and so overpowering in, in those two ways that the only way they're keeping the brand alive is actually to do these throwbacks, if you like, in parallel. Yeah. What we're doing is we're building the brand life. It's a completely different approach, completely different. You know, we're, every car we do will be evolving and, and fun to drive. If it's got, you know, 50 horsepower or 1,000 horsepower, it'll always be very evolving and fun to drive in its, in its segment, if you like. Yeah. I think, do you think there's room left? One thing that, that seems to be hollowing out, at least here in America, is kind of the middle. You've got your Alpine A110, but it seems that every year there's fewer and fewer choices for fifty dollars to $100,000 sports cars, yeah. you know? And, and what do you see as being the future of, of that for people who don't have millions of dollars for a T50 or a T33, but still want the Gordon Murray automotive philosophy of driving involvement? Uh, that, that could potentially, although we're, we don't have direct control over it, that could potentially come from the GMD side, the Gordon Murray technology side of the business, because we're, we're talking, we've, we've really only discussed uh, GM, GMA today, but the other companies in the group are working with customers using our iStream uh, manufacturing system. And we tried, we got very, very close with Yamaha. We designed them, they wanted to do a sports car, and we designed them a, a little car, about a bit bigger than the Lotus Elise, but it had aircon, massive luggage space, could fit a 97th percentile person, could fit you and me, for example, quite easily. And that was 840 kilos and, uh, and 180 horsepower. And that could have sold at 5,000 units a year, that could have sold for under 30,000 pounds. Wow. And, and we, we worked with them for a few years on it and then they had a change of management and they decided not to make four-wheel four -wheel oh. vehicles. Wah, wah. But, that's that stinks that seems yeah, promising so, yeah that's a good so recipe it, could, it won't be made by us because we're not high volume but yeah. if if somebody asks us to do a sports car using iStream 
we can engine we can design it engineer it and develop it for them it would be cool if like you know i'm, I'm going back to the uh handling by lotus badges of the 80s and, and 90s you know on the isuzus and stuff you know hand handling by uh gordon murray would be a a nice little badge to to have on that car <laughs> that's it yeah yeah well i'm sorry to our patreon members because we had we, we i was having too much fun and i didn't want to ask them to i didn't want to go to fan questions but uh professor i really appreciate the hour this was this was a, a really great moment for myself and zach who are such fans of of your work throughout history and i really hope i get to try a t50 or a t33 uh one of these days um and 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 thank you for everything Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks. Are you coming to uh, Pebble Beach, or are you showing oh, anything yeah. at Pebble Beach? Yeah, we are because we because of COVID, um, that we have about fifty percent of our markets in the states, you know, and we love coming to the states. But I've just missed out. I I, I judge at Pebble every year, but uh, because we have we haven't rarely shown anything in the states, we're we're pushing the boat out this this time. So we're going to be at the Quail. Oh. Uh, and, I will be uh, at the Quail. I will you see go. you at the Quail, and I will check out the cars in person. Come and see us. I would love to. I'll be at the Road and Track booth. Yep. Uh, they're they're yep. a sponsor, and I will absolutely make time to come see you in the cars at the Quail, and if anyone else is going to be there. Brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, Professor. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you for uh, for having the right set of priorities when you're building cars. We need, yeah. we need, we need to figure out how to clone you uh, okay. and get some more of you. Okay. All right. We'll Thanks, see you in guys. a couple of weeks. And take care. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. All right. Wow. Professor Gordon Murray. Well, that didn't disappoint. That at was all. amazing. That ruled. That was. Now he's gone. We can. Uh, I can fanboy out a little bit. That was so legit. Holy shit. What a fuck. What a guy. What a, I mean, we, you know, obviously we know he's a genius and all these things, but like, it's so cool that just to hear his thought process on everything. Yeah. Like, Bought a boiler to make an autoclave. Like that is still really using creative it. thinking. It's still in use. They sold bought it, it in the seventies, dude. Still right? using it. They sold it to someone else. Like yeah, that still works. That reminds so that made me think of like Aaron Franklin buying those used like water tanks to turn into smokers. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, reconstituting like an yeah. oil barrel or something like that for the same thing. But how about like the correct philosophy on everything? <laughs> like. Like that is uh that was that was awesome. Wow. Attention yeah. to detail in every single thing. Yeah. Design the pedals and the car and the engine parameters and like I don't care what Roden tracks me to do I'm, wants me to do. I'm parking my ass next to him at the quail. Uh-huh. Just listen and yeah. try to absorb knowledge. I'm gonna fucking pull up a folding chair and just sit down and listen to him talk about it's stuff. Too bad we didn't win the super mega millions thing. Fuck. Like you buy a T fifty off of someone someone's allocation. We gotta find a way to have a go in that thing. It's got to be nuts. I mean, Jay's probably going to have one. Jay Leno? Probably. He, yeah, probably, but he's not going to like let me drive it. Oh, I don't know. I thought you could ask him. I don't know. I don't like to ask him stuff like that. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how you ask him. We like, could probably, T50, please? We could probably find a way to get... To, if do you I, think it be a press car? I bet if we went to England, we could yeah, do it. I bet the key is one. to go... It's like Koenigsegg. you got to go there. If they're not going to ship a car here, but if we go there, we could probably do it. Worth it. 100% yeah, worth it. Yeah, I think so. God, that guy... What a set of priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's, like, so, it's so great. All correct. All correct. Yes. That was amazing. Well, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, I apologize for not getting into the 
getting to Patreon questions, but let's be honest. I, I had an hour with Gordon Murray. I wasn't letting anyone else get the fucking mic. <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered a lot of information that people asked about, which is good. Yeah. Some things we didn't, but that's okay. Yeah. I'll try to get some more info. I'll read through the Patreon questions and try and get some more info at the quail if I can. Um, uh, we're back uh, tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, the rescheduled show uh, with Amelia Hartford. So she'll be back in tomorrow. They just dropped off the Braptor. So it's big. It's huge. It's so big. <laughs> I did not realize how big it would be. It looks like an aftermarket it's, truck almost. When I walked giant. in and saw it, like the hood and everything, the heat extractors. I was sitting, sitting down there, and I forgot it was coming. And I saw someone pull in and park, and I was like, what customers here with their bro dozer? <laughs> it yeah, it's aggressive. It's aggressive as fuck. We're going to go off road that tomorrow morning. Um, but thank you all for listening. We appreciate all of your support. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow back here.